Making positive change in the world with DevOps. It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast where we help you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Jessica Kerr, and today I am here with Mark Hibbard, head of technology at Kinesis, a small company where they develop software products to help cities with climate change and useful things like that. But first, a word from our sponsors. Chef is a community of professionals practicing DevOps every day. We are making, proving, learning, and shaping the future. We are known for welcoming, encouraging, and liberating others to do the same. We do not talk about change. We do change. Join the community and learn about our solutions at chef.io. This episode is brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 120 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com slash datadog. The worst time to learn about incident response is during an incident. Don't wait for an outage to strike before getting started. The PagerDuty Instant Response Training Course is now open source and free for everyone at response.pagerduty.com. Based on the same training that PagerDuty employees go through, this course will show you how to streamline your incident response process, turn chaos into calm, and demonstrate the role of an incident commander. So what are you waiting for? Go to response.pagerduty.com today and check it out. The worst thing about the Arrested DevOps podcast is when it ends. You're left wondering what to do next. What are you going to listen to on your commute home? How do you occupy your time when walking the dog? What are you going to listen to during the quarterly all-hands meeting? But fear not, dear listener, there is a solution. You need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon Wichard, will keep you up to date on all things cloud while offering tips on how to optimize your Costco haul and how to PowerPoint. It's a fun, free-flowing conversation that will keep you entertained and informed. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. Looking for an opportunity to accelerate the delivery of reliable, secure software applications? Agile Plus DevOps West brings together practitioners seeking how to leverage Agile and DevOps concepts to bring cross-functional teams together to deliver software with greater speed and agility while meeting quality and security demands. Learn from industry experts at Agile DevOps West this June in Las Vegas and get started on the path to reduce lead time and successfully deliver stable new features. Arrested DevOps listeners use code AD400 to receive $400 off their conference registration fee. Learn more at ArrestedDevOps.com slash AgileDevOpsWest. Mark, tell me a bit about yourself. I'm, uh, I guess, uh, a software developer who's uh, kind of dabbled in everything, uh, distributed systems, security, cryptography, um, and more recently in uh, data, uh, and I guess, machine learning systems. And uh, I guess the common thread through all of those is trying to build uh, complex systems that work. Uh, uh, so that's a lot of lot of things about uh, reliability, how you change systems that have lots of users, uh, how you change systems that can't break. So I guess applying a bunch of principles to uh, all sorts of systems um, such that, you know, you know, in the end, end users uh, stay happy and don't notice that um, it's chaos behind the scenes. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's true. That's true. The the trick is we're never going to be able to actually make this simple. That's not a thing. Any successful system is necessarily complex, and the complexity is necessary for increased success. Specifically, I, I, I want to dig into you emphasized 
that one of the common thread is threads is figuring out how you change systems. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one for me. Um, so I guess there's there's a couple of different areas, but I guess it starts with uh, what, how, why systems fail, right? And systems fail because, um, well, systems are always failing if they're complex enough, right? But um, those failures become big problems when uh, they cascade to other parts of the system or one little failure will lead to bigger failures. And so a little bit of uh, high school statistics tells us that um, if failures are independent, uh, uh, the probability of a failure goes down. So we really want to maintain the independence of two things. And one of the things that actually breaks independence in our systems is when we change them because uh, Ooh, if hey. I have version one of I have version one of a soft piece of software and then version two of a piece of software, uh, they are coupled to each other um, normally via their data. Um, so, mm. Uh, mm. so uh, we have when we're changing a system, um, any data or any external things that are persistent between those versions introduce coupling. Um, we're also coupling our clients couple us via our interfaces. So any change in semantics or change in interfaces um, kind of breaks breaks the independence of that component. So by me introducing a new version or changing my system in any way, um, I risk introducing a failure that's going to cascade or uh, interrupt other parts of or other other systems, um, if, if that kind of makes sense. Um, oh, that totally, it's, well, totally makes sense. Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a little bit easier with a picture, but um, if we if you if you imagine that you have uh, two versions of every client and two versions of every service and um, one version of the data, you can imagine that there's enough arrows that everything is coupled to everything. <laughs> <laughs> one version of the data. That's so true. I mean, the yeah, yeah. Uh, my first job uh, was great. We 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 had this giant monolith. And then one of our customers wanted us to use service-oriented architecture. So we yep. broke our monolith into services, all of which used the same database and the <laughs> same tables in the same database. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes very difficult to change systems. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because and, even and that, when they're not using the same database, they're passing data back and forth. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I guess that's where, uh, particularly, uh, the deployment process and the, comp the, uh, reliability, um, is kind of dependent on how good your deployment process is. Ooh. Um, Ooh. the best, the, say that the again, best, um, your reliability, your reliability is particularly dependent on how good your deployment process is. Nice. I'm going to quote um, you on that. So, uh, for me, um, I've with my teams, I've always talked about uh, feedback loops, and I saw somebody say it a lot better than me uh, recently. There's a talk by I think it's Cole McCarthy, um, AWS uh, closing closing loops and opening minds. Um, I think it was at reInvent last year, maybe, um, who talks about control systems and how um, uh, the difference between uh, I don't know if he talks specifically about deployment systems, but I think it applies to deployment systems. Is there's things that only you know, like you you hit play and it goes and it runs a pipeline and it gets to production. Um, that's only half the story. You have to have some sort of feedback loop. You have to have uh, you have to have uh, production telling you whether it's working. Yeah, and yeah. And then your deployment process is actually adapting to that. So it needs to be a, a full loop um, where you have a lot of feedback and you're actually being able to make a lot of decisions based on what's happening, not what you want to do. It, it's kind of like test-driven development. Like we're used to, we write our test feed first because then we get immediate feedback on whether our code is working. And yes, that's beautiful. And you do get have some idea of whether it works on your machine right now. <laughs> but, yeah. but you can extend that and widen that. And I think a, a what you're talking about and really a lot of, a lot of DevOps and a lot of working with complex systems is the equivalent to TDD is ask first, how will I know it works? Yeah. And it works. It's like, what impact is it having on the users? It's not just, it didn't crash. Yeah. 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 How definitely. do I know the user is seeing this thing? How do I know whether they want to see this thing? Um, yeah. That, yeah, that, that kind of verification. And that's, that's science, right? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, measure and learn. 
Yeah. And I love that. I love DevOps because when you take responsibility for the entire, the entire software system, um, then you have that opportunity to learn from what it's really doing in production. Yeah, Instead absolutely. Instead of just what you, what you, what you want to think it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not the ideal case. It's, if you start off saying it's going to do X, it's always going to vary along the way. Um, and that's true when you're building software, but it's doubly true when it's deploying because you don't know, you don't know what a user is going to be doing at the exact time that your software is deploying. You don't know how the system's going to be behaving. There's a lot of, uh, how lot do of you detect that? What like, co- what's a concrete example of how you find out whether some change is, is really working? It's really working. Um, so I think that there's probably two different uh, sides to it. One is um, kind of working out whether it's behaving the same as the current system um, is definitely uh, one really good example. So uh, if I'm deploying a change to a service that maybe um, uh, I, I – I use a chess service, uh, like a game service as an example a lot. And so somebody's playing a game of chess and um, I have a, a service that's validating moves, for example. Um, one concrete example may be actually getting results from two different services and comparing them. Um, so actually running the old and certain new service in parallel, um, but only using the old results and testing that the new results are consistent with the old results. Um, if I want to verify that things haven't changed, uh, a different example might be, um, uh, performance metrics. So, or just, um, I'm, I'm expecting to give, um, I'm expecting that, uh, all of my moves go back out in within a second or within half a second. And kind of as I service one request or two requests, testing how long things take, um, um, to actually get an idea of, well, has the performance changed since the last version or since the current current in-production version? Okay, so you're checking performance. Um, you mentioned uh, spinning up two and sending to both and checking that the output is, that has a name, right? It's like dark something. Shadow yeah. deploy? Or- Shadow deployments, yeah. 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 I heard a really good word the other day, progressive deployment. Yep. To describe that, that kind of gradual moving your features in production because it's never just a straight cutoff anymore, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so a there's good, always uh, that interdependence that you were talking about. Yeah, it's definitely a good word. New. Yeah, I hadn't actually heard it before, but as soon as you said it, I kind of knew what you meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that came from, I think it was somebody at Redmond. I, I think it's brilliant because that is what we do. Uh, and and when, you're, when you recognize that complexity in the systems and it really can't break – and so yep. you you have to have that kind of uh, you have to have a transition period. Yeah. Um, I think for these kinds of systems, we need to be designing every deployment. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and um, being able to control how a particular change is deployed. So um, we write commit messages. Um, um, to, to describe what this code does, but uh, we very rarely say um, this is how to ship this piece of code. Um, we rely on some fairly standard standard piece of code where if I'm, uh, I guess, at the moment um, we do a lot of spatial visualization of cities and I want to change the spatial service that's doing calculations and I might want to ship a very specific test in production um, or verification step in production for my deployment. It's like I'm not deploying the whole system. There's a whole bunch of standard tests that can run against the system or uh, checks that can run against the system. But this specific change, I'm worried about these things, uh, mm. um, and this is the area of the system. I might, I might want to check that the first 100 queries that go to the spatial service all uh, return sensible um, sensible shapes um, or sensible geographies, and maybe that's something that, is too slow to run all of the time, but during deployment, it's probably worth it. Yeah. And we, we, we act like every deployment is like blinking your eye and you open it upon a new world. Yeah. And we test yeah. the new world, but, 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 but like envisioning the new world and creating the code that we want to exist in the new world is way easier <laughs> yeah. Yeah, than getting much. there from here. This is why, why rewrites 
are a disaster because it's one thing to write the software that you wish you had. And it is such another thing to change your entire organization to be the one that uses that software. Yeah. 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 And yeah, it's, it's definitely, and that that's, I I guess I, I've described it before as temporal coupling. It's this idea that like we have, we have this, um, time couples the old to the new. And I guess if you, rewrite's a good example because you create a cliff, right? It's the old Mm. version of you and they don't coexist. So um, if you break something, everything breaks all at once. Um, So that's kind of removing independence of value. Um, You want to gradually, um, just like progressive deployment in a rewrite, you don't, if you turn off all the old features and turn on all the new ones, the chance of them all working is pretty slow. Same with turning off all the old version and turning on all the new version again. It's the same type of cliff that happens. Um, yeah. So progressive deployment is definitely a good a good mental model. I will add to the show notes the link to the blog post where that yeah. term is introduced. It's quite recent. You said there were three things about resilience that you talk about. And one was yep. that systems are always failing. Always failing? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I guess. But you said three. Oh, well, so guess, now I have like these I, open loops in my head. We have to get the other two. Yeah. So, three. I, so <laughs> I guess my, my three are really, I guess, I guess, uh, building systems, operating systems and changing systems. So, so I guess it's how we construct, construct systems. So kind of from an architecture design perspective. Um, so that's a place where we always, uh, introduce coupling accidentally between services. So um. I guess that's where you're writing some code and, you have two services that share a database, um, like your example before, um, just making good decisions about how we write code. But that's like the uh, easy one. That's the one we already have like reams and reams of books about how to avoid and, and be conscious about your coupling. Yeah. Um, it's, it's true that we do, but we also have reams and reams of examples of bad, um, <laughs> of really bad examples. Uh, but did uh, they Michael start out Mike, that bad or did they uh, get that way through operation of- and changing? I think that naive examples are almost always bad. Um, ah. So uh, Michael Nygaard uh, coined a term called the entity service anti-pattern, um, which I quite like, which actually describes pretty much every microservices tutorial. Like the, every the microservice. The what anti-pattern? Entity service anti-pattern. Entity service anti-pattern. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so he it um and it almost describes perfectly the how to get started with every microservices framework there is. Um it's because, that noun orientation, right? Yeah, noun orientation where you're basically demanding that your services are going to be very chatty because okay. every time I want to talk about an an order, I'm going to go to the order service. Right. And um, to be clear, th- this is this means you have yeah, you have a user service. You have an order yeah. service. Just like yeah. in um in naive object oriented programming, you, you find the nouns in the system and you build a service around them. Yeah. yeah. I worked in an enterprise the other day, several years ago, where um, there was this really nice architect and he was so nice and well attentioned, but he really just wanted to build a canonical customer <laughs> that the yeah. entire organization would use. Yeah. I've since learned that that's a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're right that there is so much information about how to do this well, but I think that there are also lots of examples that are more technology oriented. How how do you use this framework or how do we do this that actually use examples that are really bad. Oh, that's um, interesting. And, and people just people follow them thinking, "Oh, this is how I use this technology and how I design software." And Ooh. Okay, so when and, you're trying and, to demonstrate Kubernetes or you're trying to yeah. demonstrate uh, React, yep, and we use these tiny little to-do list or whatever examples, yep. Yep. we're not demonstrating complex systems. We're demonstrating a really simple system that wouldn't grow well. Yeah, that's right. And th- there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that um, uh, I think people often feel into the fall into the trap of thinking it's both things. <laughs> Well, it's not even, it, and not even consciously, right? This is the code that you yeah, see. Yeah. We don't, yeah, we don't, exactly. we don't spend a lot of time reading large systems because we don't yes. have twenty years. Um, yep. And 
Yeah. So you have to read a small system. And when you read a small system, that doesn't necessarily teach you how to build large systems. So you, yeah, because I have an open loop on the reason that this kind of noun orientation and these entity microservices uh, produce more coupling. You mentioned that they're very chatty. Yes, that's uh, that's one that's one reason is that um, I guess if you compare it to a life cycle orientation, um, in that uh, so uh, a a an order an order um, an order goes through many stages, um, and I guess there's kind of constructing the order. Um, I guess there's the shipping process, mm. and then there's maybe the payment process and invoicing. Um, and then there's probably archival historical um, versions of that order as well. If you're if you have an order service, all of these different parts of your system, so everything has to talk back to the order service. But you, it's quite reasonable instead of having one service actually handing off the value between each of these services. Um, so there is an order inside of your shopping cart. But after it's out of the shopping cart and it's into the shipping process, the it's not no longer in some canonical order system. It's in it's in the shipping system, and we get passed along, and maybe eventually we end up in an archival storage for orders. But um, yeah. each remember- part of the system is only talking about one thing. Sorry. No. Yeah. Uh, each part of the system is talking about one thing, like, and, and that thing is in a particular situation. Yes, it's right, so contextual. Yeah, yeah. The situation of an order in a shopping cart and the situation of an order in shipping and the situation of a, an order that um, has has already been paid and shipped and hopefully won't be refunded, those are all like they're, they're separate situations. And the order isn't like a human, right? It doesn't have to stay in the same skin through those, those three life cycle phases. Yes. Yeah. So that's where you draw boundaries is at those handoffs? Yes. Yeah, those handoffs, and um, uh, like a uh, one of the smells, I guess, of that entity service anti pattern is when your you have a bunch of attributes on your noun that only describe how your clients use you. So, like having an order and it has a state state field on it, which basically says which part of the system is currently using me. Oh, um, okay, um, that's a that's a that's a big one. Um, so it's like. You have or one like order in the service. Sims, when your your sim goes through baby and toddler and and yeah. grown up phases, yeah. So you d- you don't actually want to store the order in one place for its entire lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that that has operational impacts as well. Um, so uh, I like uh, back to my chess game service example. Um, it can have um, uh, if you're playing an online game, you need it to be really fast. Um, so mm-hmm. you might want to use a, a, a very a database that's optimized for speed um, when you're playing the game. But those databases might be very expensive and not very good at historical searching. So right. if I've got an online chess service, I might only have 5,000 games currently being played, but I might have 5 million historical games. If I put all of those chess games in the one place, I have to have a database that can store all of them and be good at storing and searching them plus um, being good at being very fast. Whereas if they, if there is a service that's responsible for in-flight games and a service that's responsible for archival storage, I can have two different data stores as well. I can have maybe a slow data store, a slower data store that's good at searching for the historical stuff and maybe uh, a different type of data store that is much better at the interactive real time um, aspects of an in-flight game. But instead of having to, scale a fast database to the 5 million historical games, I only have to scale it to the 5,000 in-flight games. So it can have a profound impact on the complexity of the technology. Um, I've worked in or been a part of projects where people have gone, oh, we have this problem and we need to use Cassandra and because it's fast and it's cool and it's fast <laughs> because there's like 1,000 requests that need to be fast. And instead they put like, terabytes of data in Cassandra and have like hundreds of hundreds of nodes. Um, oh, that's and then so they can sad never- because kind of the whole thing of NoSQL originally was yeah. one database does not rule them all. Yeah, yeah. And and then they struggled to keep it up. But in fact, they could have kept 99% of their data in 
what they had and had just a small service responsible just for that fast part that only needed three servers to keep it up mm. and keep it fast enough. Um, and it would have been way cheaper and, and um, way more yeah. less, uh, operationally complex. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that, that dividing the life cycle into stages, uh, that reminds me of something I read in the domain driven design book, Eric Evans book, because he also talks about how often the same word doesn't mean the same thing in different areas of the business. An order to shipping is very different from an order to um, the the shopping stage. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and so he remarks that those are those like handoffs, especially when you never go back. You never yes. go back into the shopping cart once you place an order. If you do, it's a That's different right. order. Yeah. Um, then those are great places to draw bounded context lines. You mentioned build coupling. Okay. Did we talk about operational? I'm going to keep coming back to this three until I. Yeah, get that's three. right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> so I guess that's, yeah, we've talked a lot about building, which was the simple one. Um, right. Right. Um, and, and, but, but I really, I really like your point that we have, yep. we have lots of material that sh- uh, talk about how to do it well and a yep. whole lot of material that shows uh, not to do it well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or how to do it in the small, just yeah, just just small, yeah. Uh, okay. So on the operating system sides, it's more of the uh, forgetting about how people have written the code. How do we run and deploy it, and um, uh, kind of manage it and keep it up, keep it alive? So, uh, fit, like just simple things like health checks uh, mm-hmm. and how. I guess health checks are more commonplace now than they were, um, say, 10 years ago, but they're still, I've still seen them being used very poorly. Um, so I guess back to independence, um, I guess keep coming back to independence being really important for reliable systems. Um, I have more than once walked into a team who've gone to me, oh, no, we know about reliable systems. Um, we have health checks on all of our services. And then, what inevitably happens is they accidentally coupled the health checks of all of their services. So if one of the services go down, everything shuts itself down. Dun, so, dun, dun. so they have a, they have a, have, have something that like a, a web app at the front and it has a health check that depends on every single one of its services being up, which depends on every one of its services being up. And so like it goes, Oh, oh so it's like a perfect health check. Yeah. 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 With, without any indication. So it's like yeah, a baby. All it does yeah. is cry. That's right. Are you hungry? And are you tired? Or are you just doomed? Yeah. And in, <laughs> at least twice I've walked into a room where everyone's pulling out their hair going, production's down, production down. I don't know what's wrong. And oh, it's wow. and it turns out that the um, the actual cluster had shut it down because it had oh. declared itself unhealthy. <laughs> Oh, that's true. That's true. As soon as you start taking action based on health check, you better be careful with those health checks. Yeah, yeah. So um, accidental coupling of health checks is is a huge one. Um, oh, yeah, that makes sense because because you think of a health check as just diagnostic, but as soon yeah. as you add automation around those diagnostics, that's production yeah. code. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I guess, yeah, things like timeouts and scaling and um, – um, so all of the, I guess probably summarized as if you're operating a system, it's, you're trying to serve, uh, as many requests as you possibly can, right. And serving some requests is better than serving no requests. So doing whatever you can to get as many answers out as, as possible. So that might be, um, being pretty aggressive with timeouts. Um, so if a request is taking too long, then shut it off. Um, so that yeah, you then can you serve. have to ask yourself what happens if it does complete on the back end and yeah and there's there's a whole bunch of complexity around that i one of the more complex systems i worked with um was a licensing system for uh a very large antivirus product so that it's like the largest botnet in the world and um it basically it's a licensing check that just goes um um are you allowed to use me or and should I have an update and get me my update? And there's like two or three calls in this system. So how how hard could it be? But <laughs> uh, that there's like 40 million clients all 
sitting on like Windows machines that don't get updated. So things are very hard to change on the client side. It would send lots of requests. And so there's lots of very fast requests. But then um, the same server and the same service was also handling the thing of handing out an update. Oh, but that's a huge uh, slow thing, right? Yeah. So you'd have people on dial-up internet um, downloading a 45 megabyte file and taking like minutes and blocking requests um, for other things. So how you uh, kind of deploy things and like deploying those so that they're all going through one server, for example, is a really bad idea, um, having slow request blocking fast requests. So there's a whole bunch of um, knowledge of actually how systems get used uh, that come into the reliability of how you operate that system. Yeah, because those need to operate on different timescales. I also like to separate services that are really dangerous from services that, that services that um, are really dangerous if they fail from services that are likely to fail with a deployment. Yep. Some, some things, you know, your ads or yeah. whatever, your little pictures you can change frequently yeah. and but, with impunity, but other things not. Yeah. yeah. So there's, um, well, one of the, one, uh, I guess I like to have a positive spin on things. Um, it, so I guess uh, when we talk about reliability and stuff, we often talk of defensively, like we're trying to stop something bad from happening. Mm. But I think that there's, I think that there is a positive spin on it, which is that I actually want to embrace being able to ship unreliable things. Um, Be- because life is unreliable. I mean, everything's. Yeah. But also because unreliable things are often the most valuable things. Um, so I guess uh, in, in, especially in the early stages of a product or a company um, when you're kind of experimenting and exploring mm-hmm. unreliable software can turn out to be the most valuable software. So in, in uh, the I sense guess of I, what you learn from it in what you learn from it and, or just that you don't know if it's going to work. So there's not a lot of value in investing in it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, an example for me is that I work a lot with data scientists and um, they mm-hmm. are, they are not professional coders. Mm-hmm. They are statisticians who know how to code. Um, and one model that I've seen people try to do and not work very well is that status, the machine, the data scientists will go and just work out how to do something. And they hand it off to the programmers. And then six months later, later the programmers eventually finish it. And by then, like, it's not relevant. Anymore. We haven't learned anything. It's not relevant anymore. Yeah. Um, so I've worked a lot with data scientists trying to get them to ship their code directly into production. And it's not. It's the sort of code that's going to run out of memory and it's going to crash. Yeah, so you just make it independent, right? Yeah, you make it independent. And so I really like this idea of being able to embrace unreliable code. Um, It means means that um, like a whole different, whole different avenues open up to you um, in terms of what you can ship to production if you, if you're confident that this piece of code can't break the rest of your system. Yeah, Um, yeah. And And, and if it does break, well, it didn't work. But before that, we didn't have it. So it didn't work then either. Exactly, exactly. And um, it, it means that you can just shit crazy things. Can we just um, make it not worse? Yeah. Because if it's yeah. not worse, ah, try it. might be better. Yeah. And it, I guess on a more programmer side of things, this happens with like feature spikes. So somebody has an idea on a whiteboard and goes, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Mm-hmm. If you're – And maybe it would, but maybe it wouldn't too. So try yeah, it quickly. Who knows? But <laughs> – if you're being defensive, maybe that goes into a project plan and takes six weeks and a whole bunch of time. If you know that you can ship it without risk, well, maybe he hacks it out in the afternoon and ships it and goes, well, is this working or is this not? Um, now, if, and- if you ship it to like all your customers and suddenly all your customers expect that feature to stay there and you just made this, <laughs> pro- then that's a different that's 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 a, a different uh, situation yeah that's a different situation so you do have to you have to take into account what sort of thing it is but maybe it's a maybe it's a performance fix or maybe it's a like maybe it's an optimization to some process by removing a step um or maybe it's for a new customer that hasn't fully got on the platform any any yet and you're right so you scoped it. it's not a full deployment might be a progressive deployment <laughs> yeah 20s that word. yeah yeah, but uh, I, I yeah. Anyway, it's it's my slightly more positive spin on reliable software, which is that um, um, all of these techniques we use to be defensive actually can be used for positive change. Which is, I don't know, embracing embracing experiments, embracing um, 
different types of code. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that differs from handing it off to the programmers who take six months, not because they're bad programmers or anything, but because they're following their guidelines, which is like readable, maintainable code that's yeah. tested this way and has the types and um, yeah. and all the standards that are designed for systems that can't fail. That's right. And yeah, it's it's different different measures or metrics for quality. I guess a data scientist metric for quality is about the results, how mm. um, based on the data am I getting a very fractional improvement on a model result. Um, and that and doesn't have to be accessible to everyone in the world. It doesn't have to run on everyone's computer. It just has to run right here on this data right now. Yeah, that's right. And if we can do it, it could make a big difference. And if you can't, well, that's okay. So that's it's, disposable it, code in that sense. Yeah, it's disposable. And maybe eventually if this feature turns out to be super successful and all of a sudden you've got a lot of clients using it and relying on it, um, and it then is – Then you then get the programmers involved. Yeah, you get the program – you, you, you get, get people involved and mm-hmm. they get hard on it. Um, yeah. Slowly migrate it, um, add, add it and add it into the set of code that should never break. Um, mm, right. But – but you would never have known that if you couldn't have got it out in a day and experimented and played with it. Um, right, because so, there were 30 other things that you experimented and played with that you just deleted. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's it's being able to embrace that failure. Um, and I like a positive spin that we started with, with um, this uh, robust infrastructure. Yes. To for things that can't break, and we just want it to restart our code that we don't expect to go down. But now yeah. we can use it to run code that we do have a reasonable expectation it's probably going to break, or it's going to break often enough, and yeah, and yeah. that's okay now. So we can yeah. do things we couldn't do before. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to come back for number three. Number three was change. Yeah, change. <laughs> Which I think we talked. Oh, I mean, we, change, we talked about. We we kind of open with into that, but it's um, yeah. Even if you have a monolith and you only have one code base, um, you still have things to be coupled. You're still coupled with the different versions of your one thing. The right? data um, in the database. The, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of things, and um, I guess uh, coming back to feedback loops. So this is where the deployment process, and I guess all of the practices that people talk about with continuous deployment. Um, matter for reliability just as much as um, shipping features. Um, yeah. So, And yet we say the deployment process, but we said, we talked earlier about how it's not the same every time. That's right. Um, yeah. Like you, you may want to run different checks. You may, there, there's a whole bunch of context with each de- deployment that, that, that might matter. Um, I think, you know, true DevOps uh, situation where developers um, are, really aware of the operational environment, they would be writing checks with their code. So mm-hmm. I'm committing this feature, I'm writing a test to verify it locally and on CI, but I'm also writing a check that's going to run in production before it can get turned on. Right, um, like a validation thingy of how do we know it works. You should be yeah. able to say for sure it's not working first. So if the first thing I put in my code was like some some maybe things that emit events in yeah. In the case of the feature worked or the feature didn't, I should be able yep. to say I'm getting all it didn't work because I haven't implemented it yet. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's uh, a, a, like a fairly general. I think it's called Scientist. There's a. I think GitHub released a small Ruby library that um, called Scientist, which Cute. does something similar. It um, instruments it instruments a piece of code such that it it calculates the results and sends sends some stats off, um, which is interesting. I also saw another great example of it I thought was um, uh, the Facebook, the hack language. So when they were mm-hmm. tra- they're transitioning to typed PHP mm-hmm. and one of their practices that they did was that a programmer can add a indicative type and go, I think that this is a string <laughs> and oh. then just ship it to production. And what happens is that it monitors that. It doesn't check it. It just monitors that and – um, so it'll send stats back to say, this was a string, this was a string. Oh, it was an int here. Um, <laughs> this is a string. Um, but after That's a cool. number of weeks, 
after a number of weeks, say it was all strings, and so that type annotation was uh, correct, um, it actually goes and ranges, uh, raises a change request to actually make it a permanent type so that it actually type checks and will okay. fail if it's not a string. And so that kind of... Uh, okay, yeah. It's like, I, I want to make this change in six weeks' time if this continues to be true. <laughs> right, so first you make a prediction, and yeah. then you... you- inject um an observation into the system so that you can you can be surprised if yes. your prediction was false and then yes. you may be able to change the world such that your prediction is more true yes <laughs> and then yeah. escalate the consequences of surprise yes yeah yeah so it's um it's a totally different right way to write code which is that um you all you're kind of trying to it's it is very much the uh, scientific process it's mm-hmm. I, I I make a hypothesis about the type of change I want to make I'm going to test my hypothesis and then if that turns out to be true then I'm actually going to make that change yeah um, and this is, is a, testing in production but it's a totally different kind of testing yeah it's it, not it's a, a did it fall over yeah no it's not a did it fall over and it's 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 a totally different way to approach writing new code. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not, it's not for all code, but, um, you know, I think if you've got any system that's complex or has lots of customers or, um, the change is high risk, mm-hmm. um, whether that's because of externalities or because you're worried about the code. Um, mm-hmm. I know that right now there's a piece of code that was written in, uh, at my current workplace, which is. A very, very large SQL statement, hundreds and hundreds of lines of oh. SQL, <laughs> um, which which is scary. But every time anybody changes it, it there's like a fear. <laughs> and um, being able to say that, being able, instead of being able to directly change it, going, this is how I want to change it, um, and putting that into production like and getting shadow. some feedback on it. Yeah, but um, getting some feedback on that is right. is hugely valuable it's 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 like programming with it's pair programming with a user almost um it's more akin to it's more akin to um uh, i guess uh, people talk about uh, interactive programming environments or Uh things like small talk and stuff like that Uh where you're interacting with a live system Uh, they're quite often talking still about an isolated development environment it's like yeah you have a running system and you're interacting with it and like repls are Uh a small example of that but Imagine doing that on a scale where you're actually shipping, doing that over a time frame of days or weeks, but in production with users, and you're going, well, how about this change? How about this change? Um, which That's is, cool it's not for everything, but yeah. it's um, definitely a very powerful technique. Right, because if you, if you're being evaluated on what features did you ship, uh, you know, how many cards did you complete, this is not what you're going to do. No, no, no. But if you're getting evaluated, well. If you're personally not getting evaluated at all, but your team or your company is getting evaluated on how how successful users are, for instance, this is the kind of thing you would do. Yeah. Um, have you seen Dark? No. That is a, a brand new um, environment where you can deploy a web app and interact with it directly. Um, okay, yeah. Kind yeah. of like that small talk style, but with users. Yeah. So that is awesome. And that is, it really is an example of new ways of working with complex systems, systems yeah. that are so complex, we can't just use reasoning to figure yeah. out what they're going to do. And yet our goal, our goal is not to have any chaos inside, right? We can have things failing. We can have experiments going on, yeah. but yet there's, there's a boundary outside yeah. of which it looks peaceful. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Our bodies are like yeah. that, right? There's all kinds of crazy things going on inside and it's different every day yeah. and we really have very little idea. But outside yeah. it just looks like a coherent system. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's Yeah, that's I mean that's what that's basically coming back to what you said right at the start, which is that 
I'm, I'm just trying to just trying to get it to the point where the users don't know about the chaos behind the scenes. Exactly. And the fun part is, dude, dude, I worked in like biology at one point and people are yep. like, uh, they're like, what happens if this gene is, is in the seed and then, but then you have to inject all kinds of gene markers and then you just like hurl the gene at the seed tens of thousands of times and you hope, you hope in some of them it, it like takes and it gets into the DNA, but not too many times because those are weird too. And it's so hard to figure out what is going, and not this whole process takes like a year. Um, and we just like add a log statement, you know, we just put an event in, we deploy that. It's so easy to inject yeah, yeah. these experiments directly into the heart of the system. So we have yeah. opportunities for this kind of science. I think it's really cool. Is there anything else that you particularly want the listeners of Arrested DevOps to know? Yeah, I guess I think the takeaways for building systems in general is to, um, I guess I like that positive spin, as I said, think about ways in which, you are enabling things to happen rather than defending against bad things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Safety too, right? Yeah. 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 It's, there's a whole bunch of, whole bunch of positive to be taken away from these techniques. Um, yeah. I don't think we should sell these to, uh, for the negative. We shouldn't sell them mm. saying we have to invest in this because it might fall over. It's like, we want to invest in this because it's going to help us do this. Um, and do new and I think things that, that we couldn't before. Yeah, that's far more exciting and interesting to me than I'm going to prevent a I'm going to prevent um, a coding error. Um, right. And it's not that that it's not that preventing a coding error is invaluable. I, I want to do that, but um, I think that uh, kind of the positive statement is is far more powerful and far far more important to the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's about what we can do. Yeah, um, which definitely. for the for the record, I referenced safety two a minute ago, and yep. the difference between safety one, which is the old idea of safety, and safety two is that safety one asks, "How can we prevent failure? How can we prevent errors? What causes failures?" And safety two is like, "How can we have more success? What causes success?" Because hint, the answer is usually people. But yeah. also all these automations yeah. that we layer, right? We have layers and layers of uh, fixes and checks and and yep. things that we notice. And all of these are active safety. Yep. We're adding yep. success. Yep. And then when you do that, you get to add all these other successes, like your experiments and things. Whole new successes that we did not expect. Sweet. I want to ask you, um, at Kinesis, what, what do you all do to help help cities and help with climate change? Yeah, so we, uh, I guess, I guess uh, we have an analytics platform, basically where we collect data, uh, urban data sets, so things about the weather, temperature, uh, all sorts of data sets that don't get uh, aggregated together very often. Um, like lots of people have you know, the data in individual silos, but we kind of bring it together in a way that is more accessible. Uh, yeah, and like then traffic data. Yeah, a lot of mobility data, mm -hmm. mobility, population, land use, um, uh, a lot of consumption data, so how people use electricity, uh, um, things like that. And then I guess we let people do analytics on that, but then we also help them make better decisions. So uh, we do some predictive analytics on, uh, say, you're building a new precinct or a new land development um, and help them say, well, if we build to this standard or have this level of insulation, how will that impact on cost and on uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Um, and this is a complex system. So there's a big building here in Sydney, which uh, is a huge complex system that I find very interesting, which is that uh, it was designed to be energy efficient. So they put a whole bunch of solar panels on it. But that generates a lot of excess electricity, which then has to go back into the grid, which isn't very good or very efficient. So then they install a uh, no, so like uh, um, having too much uh, peak electricity is is bad. So then um, they they use that to then power a recycled water plant. Um, so huh. a recycled water plant may be seen as an energy sink, but in fact, in this case, it's good because it's shedding the excess load at peak times. Oh wow! So so there's a a recycled water plant that in general yep. is inefficient, 
but you have so much energy that energy is no longer a limited resource. And if energy is not a limited resource, then a recycled water plant is a plus. Yes. And then huh. that, then uh, the recycled water plant has the same problem, which is that when there's water to use, it's great. <laughs> it excess, excess, excess water. When there's excess water, um, it's a drain on it's a problem because the efficiency of the sewage system comes in into uh problem so then they they planted tree uh plants all the way up the side of this high rise so now there's plants so just the water and then (laughs) the plants the plants also provide additional shade which then reduces the need for um air conditioning because it actually uh lowers the ambient temperature oh no but now we have more power yes and so (laughs) But like there's a there's a huge balancing act. So helping people make those sort of decisions and balancing those sort of complex systems. Wow, that's um, amazing. Because yeah, because it keeps being too much of a good thing, and then you you make more good things, and then those make more good things. So you've gotten some sort of what's this building called? Uh, Sydney Central uh, Sydney Central Park Towers, I think it is. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's my new favorite building. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and then um, so other things uh, is like um, demonstrated. There's temperature problems in Sydney, so uh, I guess there's um, uh, on a very hot day it can be like seven degrees Celsius difference between part different parts of Sydney, which is fairly extreme. And some of that's being away from the parts of the city being away from the coast, but it's actually, I guess, we brought in enough data sets to demonstrate that uh, it was actually due to canopy cover, so the amount of trees. creating heat well, lack of trees creating heat islands from too much cement effectively and so helped mm. like get a government to change its policy about trees and where they should be planted so we actually think we can make a one or two degree difference just by planting they, the government wants oh, to wow. plant trees but if you plant them here um that will reduce the temperature like in the parking the most, lot and then also yeah around parking lots and around certain areas which don't have much greenery where there isn't much natural forest land and then also that correlating that with data sets for at-risk populations so hmm. elderly poor where they don't uh, uh, economic status where there isn't much air conditioning and things like that so high risk areas so you correlate these two and it gives you hot zones for um this is where if you're going to plant five million trees you plant in this area it's going to have the most impact nice. um so trying nice. to trying to and again, it's not about how many trees did you plant this year. It's about outcomes. Yeah, yeah. And it's about policy decisions. So trying to have an impact at a fairly high scale. Um, so the, 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 that's the type of thing. So bringing data sets together and doing predictions or measurements or optimizations around um, that data so you can make kind of just better decisions around cities. And it's nice because it's um, our customers who are normally competitors, I guess, in some ways. And, like, you have two property development companies that build buildings. They think they're a competitor. But when it's talking about improving a city, it means that, I don't know, they get more value, both of them. So um, uh, our customers start to help each other in interesting ways. Even though they're normally highly competitive, it's like, well, actually, we're sharing our data about – so we have a thing – uh, building partnerships where they share data with each other about how to make uh, buildings in the city more efficient. Um, so um, we have uh, this partnership that shows that over the last five or ten years that by working together they've actually – the buildings in this partnership have reduced their carbon footprint significantly more than the other buildings just by working together um, on policies and decisions. Wow. That's beautiful. Making positive change in the world with DevOps. Definitely better than selling ads. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Are you hiring? (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) In Sydney, I imagine. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. And and to all our listeners, remember, there's always DevOps. In the banana stand. Yes, the banana stand. (laughs) 